Hi everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Risk and Regulation Rundown. I'm Tessa Norman, I'll be your guest host for this episode and today we're talking about the FCA's business plan. Joining me today are two expert guests, PwC Director Andrew Strange, who regular listeners will know um, is usually the host of this podcast, but today he's playing the role of expert guest, and Connor McManus, who is a director in our FS Regulatory Insights team. So the FCA published its business plan and three-year strategy in early April. Um, This is always an important document for the industry, setting out the regulator's priorities and plans for the year ahead. But the FCA took a bit of a different approach this year and we saw less of a focus on specific sectors or initiatives and more of a focus on outcomes. I think it's helpful to start by reflecting on the context that the business plan was published in this year. Um, It was published against the backdrop of a lot of political and economic uncertainty. Connor, how do you think that backdrop and and that level of uncertainty has shaped the um, FCA's business plan this year? Thanks, Tessa. Yeah, I mean, look, so we've had nearly six years now where the FCA, as well as other public authorities, and of course, uh, the financial services sector have been dealing with pretty significant events. So, you know, obviously we had the the Brexit referendum and and the prolonged uh, negotiation and then the UK finally leaving the EU and then obviously the the COVID pandemic. Um, And just as we were coming out of that, uh, the, the terrible events in in Ukraine. Um, so to some extent, you know, that level of volatility and significant events means that, you know, it's, it's understandable that the regulator will want to have a bit of capacity to respond to events which were perhaps not not predicted. So I think that's, you know, that that's one factor. I think the other thing is just the amount of stuff the FCA has to do at the moment. Um, you know, uh, since the UK left the EU, there's been a, a, a very significant amount of regulatory uh, initiatives, which is creating an enormous amount of work for the FCA to do. You know, it's, it's well publicised. They have uh, capacity constraints, which which are impacting on them uh, at the at the moment. So I think that's an, a, another uh, big factor. Um, but then I think there's also a lot of internal work going on at the FCA at the moment. So you know, we know with they're investing a lot of uh, time and resources on their transformation program, which they clearly see as really a prerequisite for them to be able to deliver their workload. Yeah, and I, I think you're right that to an extent the SCA's kind of um, baked in a degree of flexibility into the plan by, by keeping it quite high level to, to allow it to, to respond to, to um, current events and the current environment. Um, we, we, we saw some pretty extraordinary measures in response to the pandemic, so things like mortgage payment holidays. Do you think we're likely to see more of that in, in response to, to the cost of living crisis? I think potentially. I mean, perhaps you would have expected to see a little bit more um, uh, on the cost of living crisis uh, in the business plan, but I suppose there's there's, there's a much broader issue than um, one that can be tackled by a conduct regulator. There's obviously you know levers that only the government can pull, which would uh, w- which would address some of the, the issues that we're seeing. But clearly, we're going to see you know a lot of focus on this issue. We're going to have a lot of um, pressure, I think, from, for example, the Treasury Select Committee for all policymaking bodies to be doing everything it can to, uh, to address some of the challenges we're seeing at the moment. So it'll be one to watch and, and potentially we would see more action from the FCA in the future, I think. Yeah. And uh, Andrew, what, what's your take on that? Do you think that the current environment sort of raises some broader questions about the, the FCA's role and remit? 
Yeah, I do. And thank you for, for hosting so I can pontificate from this side of the table, Tessa. This is great. I mean, I think there's a really interesting debate on the balance of responding to issues versus kind of driving almost public policy change. And, and Connor's talked about that a little already. You know, responding to issues like some of the forbearance measures as a consequence of COVID, you know, tackling some of the issues potentially that might fall out of the cost of living crisis are clearly something I think a regulator needs to do. But I'm always intrigued by, by a regulator that's trying to, for example, encourage financial capability or limiting high risk investments or encouraging greater access to investments for example you know for me there's a there's an inherent difference between removing barriers to access investments versus encouraging people to invest and i think it's an interesting debate around what the scope and remit of the regulator is i also think beyond the sort of scope of purpose there's a point around the scope of the actual number of firms that the fca is trying to deal with you know it's still regulating over 50,000 firms the senior manager's regime was about firms to some extent taking responsibility for, for for making sure people are fit and proper. But I do wonder whether actually maybe there's a bigger role. I'm not, not about to advocate for um, self-regulatory organisations of the past, but you know, what's the role of professional bodies? If we're talking about outcomes-focused regulation and we're talking about people's actions and integrity and so on, actually isn't there something professional bodies could do more in? Uh, finally, I also think there's an interesting point around the types of firm that the FCA is trying to to, to regulate. We've got at the moment a prudential regulator in the PRA and a conduct regulator in the FCA. But actually, the FCA does do a lot of prudential regulation for the investment firm world that I work in, for example. And I think if we begin to look at some of the needs of some of those firms that it regulates, you know, there's, for me, an inherent difference between the need of a, a retail consumer versus a wholesale market. You know, one of those is around consumer protection domestically, as you'd expect, but one of them is more around international competitiveness. Uh, and I think there is a I could see how there is a divergence of approach that that one particular regulator taking might be a bit of a challenge for them. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of what you've touched on there just kind of underlines the the scale of of, of the challenge that, that that the SCA is facing on on multiple fronts. Um, so we've talked quite a lot about the the context and, and some of what the business plan maybe doesn't say. Um, so Andrew, in terms of what it does say, what what can you um what can we learn from the plan about the regulator's priorities? Well, as you said in your, your intro, Tessa, I mean, it's it's focused on outcomes, really, rather than sort of sectors or particular initiatives. And, and it's sort of evolved over the last couple of years to that point. Uh, obviously, we've got the joint regulatory grid document that's published twice a year, and we're expecting the next one uh, in May, um, which sort of sets out some of that granular detail around initiatives that we're expecting from regulators. Though I've got to, I mean, I don't want to preempt it too much, but I'm guessing there won't be a huge amount of new stuff in there. The, the reality is, I think, with some of those external factors we've talked about and just the realities of bandwidth i think i think we might see some tweaking of dates but i'm not sure we're going to see lots of new initiatives the the business plan itself though it it kind of focuses on three main areas and priorities under that Uh, many of these will be familiar to firms i don't think they're hugely new or exciting so it talks about reducing and preventing serious harm so that's about protecting consumers but also encompasses things like fraud and and tackling sort of poor treatment and poor outcomes Uh, and Pieces of work like the existing work around the appointed representatives regime would fit in that in that world very clearly. They also talk about setting and testing higher standards. And I do think that's interesting because I, I think it's a change in tone around meeting regulatory obligations and meeting standards to one where they're talking about enhanced and going above. So I do think there's a, a potential step change there in what they're expecting from firms. Clearly, initiatives like the consumer duty proposals, where we're expecting final rules this summer, um, will will fit clearly into that world. And it also builds on on previous activities. So things like making sure consumer credit markets work well would be very much in the the space of putting consumer needs first. Uh, 
And then the final one is around competition and, and promoting positive change. So things like that kind of broad international competitiveness agenda, ESG type requirements would all fit into that as well. So not necessarily new, but that, that's kind of how they're grouping them together. A couple of other points that they've also focused on. So I was taken by the quite big focus they had on the authorization gateway. Uh, and I don't think anybody in, in a firm would would want a weak authorizations gateway. I think it needs, it's important. It needs to be really robust. But I do think there's potentially a slight conflict between the time constraints of having a robust authorizations gateway and the bandwidth of the regulator and that issue around sort of speed and innovation. So I think that there's a, an interesting debate there. They also, as an organization, are, are transforming themselves. So they do talk a bit about things like becoming more of a data-led regulator, which we've heard before i don't think in practice we really know what that will mean until we see their, their their data strategy which should be published in coming months but they also talk about um lots of the issues that i know we're facing as a firm and many of our clients are facing so talking about expanding their footprint in edinburgh opening up a new um, office in leeds as well so moving outside of london a bit and finally i think the, the the remaining interesting thing that i really would love to talk more about is around some of the success metrics they've begun to flesh out um, I think possibly the last time I was a guest on this podcast, we talked about the consumer investment strategy, which was from um, autumn 2021, where they began to kind of set out some of the, the success metrics they wanted to achieve. So thinking about compensation scheme and access to high risk investments or lack of access to high risk investments and so on. And what we saw in the business plan was the FCA now building this out into its overall approach. So a much greater kind of use of, of success metrics demonstrating what it wants to achieve in the market. Yeah, I agree. I think I think that's really interesting. As you say, I think that consumer investments piece was was one of the first times that, that we've seen the SCA be really specific about the sort of um, outcomes and metrics it, it wanted to achieve. And now we're starting to see um, how the SCA proposes to to build that out into a, a broader framework. I mean, could, can you tell us a bit a bit more about how the SCA is planning to approach this? And also, are there any lessons for firms here? Because of course, a lot of firms are, are thinking about similar things, thinking about how they measure um, outcomes, for for instance, um, for how they're going to comply with the regulators' consumer duty proposals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, so I think it, it's a good idea to set out those success metrics. I mean, let's say that up front, you know, it, it allows for greater accountability of the regulator. Um, and actually, I think probably from a regulatory perspective, it, it increases transparency. So I think it's a good thing. Um, as you say, I mean, firms, when you think about things like the consumer duty proposals and outcome focus regulation, firms have really struggled with 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 how you evidence that. Uh, and I've got to say, looking at some of the FCA's work here, I think they're realising it is quite a, a tough task. Uh, it's a good indication of how hard it is, really. I mean, some of the metrics they've gone through really are um, work in progress. So they're trying to work out how best to do it. Um, and I was actually quite surprised by the number of times they were using what I would call lagging metrics there. So things like complaints data or, or burdens on compensation scheme, which if you're in a, an outcome focused regime, I'm slightly surprised that there's such reliance on, on lagging metrics, though you know, it is exactly what our clients are finding when they're looking at consumer duty, for example. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you could argue that by the time it's filtered through to, to complaints or other things, it's arguably kind of too late to act. Um, and the, the other um, aspect that the SCA talked about was perception metrics. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I think this is this is fascinating, the idea of, of perception metrics. I mean, again, if you go back to some of the things we've done in, in the world around consumer duty with our clients, there's some really interesting debates here. If you've got a consumer who's quite correctly been refused credit, are they going to be satisfied? Probably not. Yeah, in extremists, if we went back to, to the late 1980s, if I was, as it turns out, missold an endowment policy, 
but with the promise of paying off my mortgage early, probably on day two of having that product, I was extremely satisfied, but long term, I wasn't going to be. Uh, and again, you can't roll your eyes at this, Tessa, because I know I talk about this far too often for many, many years. But you know, in financial services, we don't have a long stop. We don't have a long stop because of the long term nature of the products before um, you know, people necessarily realize that there is a problem or a fault. You know, therefore, I worry that a, a point in time perception is um, it's arguably the sort of the ultimate lagging uh, metric or the ultimate premature metric. And neither of them are necessarily spot on or right. You know, customer perception or satisfaction for me isn't the same as a good outcome, but it's really difficult to to to, to sort of juggle those those points. In terms of the consumer duty piece, I think it's interesting that firms could look at what the FCA has done there in terms of their own thinking. So there are probably lessons for them to learn as well. You know, the FCA's approach in part is looking at things like surveys, whether they're financial life survey, other surveys, or even surveys of, of firms. You know, perhaps in our clients, we'd call that consumer testing. And we've seen lots of firms talking about how they can incorporate consumer testing into their sales processes. Uh, and I think, as we'd say to all our clients, that you know, that can be helpful as part of the picture, but it's certainly not the whole picture. And I think that firms, and actually therefore the FCA, probably need to be careful about how they ask those questions. I also would slightly cynically say there's a, an interesting philosophical question around actually what do you want from your regulator here? You know, do I want a regulator that is perceived to be successful or that actually is successful? So I think any metrics we can have that are properly tangible, I think it would be great. Definitely. And so as well as, well as setting out the um, outcomes and, and metrics that the SA wants to achieve for, for its own activities, it also outlined the outcomes that it expects all firms to deliver. And um, so it broke that down by both consumer outcomes and, and wholesale market outcomes. And um, Connor, what, what's your take on that? And, and how much more kind of clarity does this give firms in terms of what outcomes based regulation is going to look like in practice? Yeah, so I think, so this is something that the FCA and, and to some extent the PRA have been talking about for a number of years now. So this is the idea that now we're outside of the EU, you can move away from that very granular rules-based approach to regulation to something which is more outcomes or principles-based. So the regulator setting out, you know, a relatively high level objective, um, but leaving more flexibility to firms in terms of, of, of how they deliver that. And that's clearly something that comes across very strongly in the business plan uh, and, and in the strategy. You know, it is very high level um, at this stage. And I think the extent to which firms will get more guidance will depend on, on the topic. Um, so, for example, consumer duty, which we've already talked about, um, you know, there's a, there's a clear, very clear objective in terms of what the, the regulator wants firms to achieve. But I think they're cognizant of the fact that they need to give more detail to firms in terms of what that actually looks like in practice and perhaps we'll see that when the final rules come out you know in other areas we're likely to see much more granular uh, detail so for example in the capital market space we're likely to see high level objectives that the that the fca wants firms to to achieve around market integrity and the like but that's likely to be underpinned with much more granular rules than we see in the kind of consumer outcome space. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's helpful to see these objectives articulated in a high level way. The way in which it then trickles down into more detail, I think, will depend on the topic. Yeah. And, and Andrew, what, what's your take on that? I think particularly thinking about the kind of market that firms are operating in, in, in the moment, we're seeing a lot of sort of um, product innovation, development of new types of products. Does this sort of approach work in that world? Well, I, I'm not entirely sure that it's actually radical enough would be my observation. Um, I'm not sure everyone wants something that's deeply radical, but but just just hear me out on it. I mean, I think that, that 
that transition to outcomes is definitely the right answer. But I worry about whether we can pivot successfully to that whilst we're still thinking about traditional product-centric regulation and legislation as well. You know, do we end up with the best of both worlds or actually the worst of both worlds? And actually, I also worry that even in the way we're thinking about it now, this kind of this pivot to outcomes regulation is still based on slightly outdated concepts around the product in inverted commas that people are buying. Um, uh, If you think about, for example, credit cards, you know, my generation uses credit cards quite regularly. Actually, younger people, uh, nothing like an old person lecturing younger people, but younger people are looking at things like buy now, pay later as an alternative. So, you know, there's some sort of societal changes there in terms of the product set as well. Uh, If you think about crypto in its widest sense, you know, as an investable asset and so on, you know, the, the, the attitudes of people is very different. And I think that the approach to, to switching towards consumer outcomes is great, but actually, do we need to go further in terms of really thinking about what is fit for not just today's products, but actually also tomorrow's products or the products of 10 years' time as well? Uh, and I'm not sure we're yet getting to the point where we're radical enough or flexible enough to deal with that. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think I think part of that may be addressed by Connor's point that the SA is going to take a different approach to different areas, but, but, but you're right, they've almost got to look that much further ahead to make sure that this is fit for purpose for the future. And is there even, uh, you know, we talk about different areas, but are there actually new areas that we haven't thought about yet? So yeah, it's the unknown unknowns as well as the known unknowns, as it were. Yeah. Um, so to, to kind of wrap up our, our discussion, it'd be great to get both of your views on sort of what practical steps can firms take now off the back of the business plan and, and what should they really be focused on over, over the next few months? Um, Connor, I'll come to you first. Yeah, I mean, so I think there's probably two things, two points I would make. I mean, the first is, you know, as we've discussed, there isn't an enormous amount of new stuff in in the business plan, but there is a huge amount to to, to do um, at the moment. You know, I talked about the amount of regulatory initiatives that we've seen since the uh, the UK left the EU. Um, we're getting to the stage now, so for example, on consumer duty, where firms really need to start thinking about embedding that into their operations and and uh, and how they they operate and how their, and their business model. You know, there'll be similar proposals coming in the wholesale market space and the wholesale markets review quite soon. So there'll be a lot to do there. Um, so really, there's just a lot of work to be getting on with um, uh, this year and, and and next. I think the the second point, which is a kind of a, a kind of bigger point, is around thinking about what outcomes-based regulation means in practice. Um, so, you know, as I was mentioned, it's really premised on firms being able to apply quite a significant amount of judgment in terms of what uh, regulators want them to do and embedding that into the way in which they interact with their customers and, and the way in which they, they operate. And I think that will, for some firms, require a bit of a shift in terms of thinking about compliance, um, which, you know, much less focus on looking at the rules, much more focus on applying judgment in in terms of what they need to do. So I think that's something that firms really need to start thinking about because, as we've discussed, you know, the trajectory is pretty clear from the FCA business plan that that focus on on outcomes isn't going away. Great. And Andrew, is is there anything you'd add to that in terms of the the takeaways for firms? I mean, I totally agree with everything Connor said there. And the reality is when I think about the work firms had to do just to define value in asset management, yeah, that, that, that was a difficult task. And actually, consumer outcomes is a much broader thing, which applies to all firms. So incredibly difficult. I mean, the only things I'd add on perhaps are I've had a number of conversations recently with compliance type people in, in clients who said, you know, we get what you're saying, Andrew, we, we know what we need to do here. However, when it comes to the business, they keep coming back and saying, but where's the rule? You know, where does it say in COB 6.2? 
really that I need to do X, Y, and Z. So I think there's a, a really interesting, challenging cultural shift for people outside of our compliancy type risk world who who, who need to understand what the regulatory expectations are. Um, we said it before, I think that the whole data point is really interesting when we get that data strategy later this year. I think that will be great to see. You know, the, the reality is the quality of data is going to be incredibly important. You know, Being an outlier, whether positively or negatively, is going to potentially have an impact on the way you'll supervise. So firms need to think about that. And then finally, I think I, I make the point, I think firms maybe could afford to be slightly more creative than they have been in the past. I'm not saying the regulator has torn up the rule book at all, but I think the regulator is genuinely open-minded about stuff, you know, whether it's how you communicate with your your clients and you know, moving away from PRIPS-type documents, but actually doing stuff that really works. And I do think that it feels to me like the regulator is keen firm to try different things. Might not always work, but give it a try and see if you can get to a better outcome. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. The regulator's kind of looking to, for firms to come up with the with the answers, ra- rather than kind of um, re- relying on finding those in the rules. Great. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. And um, it's been really interesting to hear about you know why the SCA has taken a bit of a different approach this year, and 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 what firms can can take from the plan, and 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 how much work there still is to do, even though there might not be a huge amount of kind of new initiatives in there this year. And um, and also thinking about how this plays into the um to the regulator's broader approach and and where we're moving to in the future. So our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Please subscribe to future episodes and rate and review this series. And we'll be back with our next episode next month. <laughs>